What's the difference between a pub and a tavern? I feel like that's a question that only British people know the answer <laughs> to. It. The pub, you know, the pub is just going to the pub. <laughs> hey, y'all, this is Chris Moldes at CB Moldes on Twitter. And I just had a question about what your experience has been in Russia, if, uh, if you're a language learner. So, like, if Russian isn't your native language, I'm just wondering what kind of experiences you've had with Russians as they find out that you're learning Russian. I asked just because from my experience, um, I had noticed that, for example, the older generation was more accommodating in a sense. When they realized I was learning Russian, they even seemed excited about it. Whereas the younger generation seems to be a little more dismissive and even callous. Like if I were to make a mistake, they would rag on me for a long time with that. So I'm just wondering what kind of uh, experiences you've had in Russia with that. Thanks. Thank you, Chris. Lily spoke perfect Russian straight from the womb. Привет, mama. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. There's definitely a generational difference, but it's more I would say the difference is more like if Russians speak English or think that they speak English well, they tend to switch into English one to like quote unquote practice their English um, with a native speaker for free. <laughs> I charge money for that, so the second reason to like show off. My main thing with what it feels like to be a foreigner in Russia, learning Russian and speaking Russian now like pretty fluently, I have like literally the same conversation over and over and over and over again. And it usually goes like this. I speak and then someone is like, oh my God, you speak Russian? People generally are very positive about that and also compliment Russian, just saying. I have observed her being complimented on her Russian in multiple settings. Thank you. And then after the compliments come the ever annoying, it's never not annoying question. <laughs> like, how did you get here? Almost like, how? Well, I flew. Actually bought a plane ticket. It's like they're expecting that you like took a three-week voyage on like a boat from the 1950s. Yeah, they're like, how do people even get here? I didn't, know. I didn't even know it was possible for foreigners to enter the country. This is the meat of the podcast. Wait, have you ever, have you ever caught your, have you ever caught your profile reflection in the mirror? Yeah. 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 This shit feel like I won't ever make it home. This is She's in Russia. I'm Smith, and I am in Oregon right now. I'm Lily. I'm still in St. Petersburg. And what are we talking about today? This is going to be one of those episodes in which I... Lily, tell Smith about something, and by extension, also tell our dear listeners. And the topic is Christmas slash New Year's in Russia, and why they're together and slashed, you'll find out. Stay tuned for more juicy details. <laughs> it's going to be a super spicy app. I'm going to be telling you about the history of these two holidays by way of telling you about the history of the tree. That decorates both of these holidays, which is now, nowadays is a New Year's tree, but at one point was a Christmas tree as it is for most of the Christian world. 
actually all of it. And I'm not even saying Western world because the Christian world is bigger than the Western world. It sure is. Jesus's message appealed to a lot of different kinds of people. Jesus is Lord. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start with now. I've celebrated New Year's in Russia once. So in modern day Russia, everyone in the country celebrates New Year's. And it's a completely secular holiday. It's very family oriented. Christmas exists in the Orthodox Church calendar, which places it on January 7th. And we'll talk about the calendar later because that's actually confusing. But it's only for religious people. Like it's much more small scale only for like people who are practicing Orthodox. Slash a lot of people sort of pretend that they're Orthodox and also like have dinner that day. But it's certainly not as like a big deal. Okay, maybe you're going to explain this. But did the Chris, did the tree thing become a thing on New Year's because that the Soviet Union people still wanted to celebrate Christmas? Yeah, basically. But I'm definitely going to talk about that. So now people get trees that look similar to Christmas trees, like decorate them and everything. What Are there like specific weird decorations that Russians use? Do you know? The decorations from the Soviet Union were, were kind of amazing. And I think that a lot of people still have them, you know, kind of like vintage Just a little side note about decorations since you asked. Before the war in the early Soviet era, the decorations that were being produced, a lot of them were like really political or sort of achievement themed or like technology themed like a rocket and like a red star of course on top that became the star like the Kremlin star instead of the star of Bethlehem. Do people still put stars on top of their trees? I think people put stars on top yeah but not like a specifically Kremlin star. During the war in the Soviet Union the decorations became much more like military themed like tanks and (laughs) army guys. (laughs) Yeah it was like a whole industry it was like a big deal. I know there's even like ads which I'll put in our arena link from the war that have like this horrible Santa warrior <laughs> like Santa army guy who's like bursting out of the chimney or something to like kill people I don't know it's really horrible <laughs> there was another phase of decorations after the war you know like the, during the thaw under Khrushchev when the decorations started to become more I would say what we recognize as like typical Christmas like sort of fairy tale like snowmen and angels and In any case, that was a side note about decorations. But right now, the most important thing about celebrating New Year's these days, you generally, you gather around with your close family. There's like a a big table and there's a lot of food and everybody waits until midnight. Nobody eats before that. And you just like set the table with all of these little side dishes, but a lot of salads, like Olivier is a very famous one. You have champagne and the TV is very important. The TV is on. Because there's just like a New Year's show that plays and then... Wait, wait, wait. What, what is the show? I, I honestly don't know. Like concerts and stuff. Okay. And then everyone listens when a little before midnight, the president and or the general secretary during the Soviet Union comes on the TV and like talks about the year, all of the achievements we've made, like all the posy things we've done and all the hardships we've been through and how we're all one people and we're together. And then at midnight, it shows like the Kremlin bell strikes midnight, da, da, da. And then everybody does a toast with their champagne and then you can start celebrating basically. So it's very much like the same as us, but it's it's more about the, the meal. You like sit down and have that meal before you later like in the night you can go out and like make noise and be rowdy and stuff. So this whole image, this like quintessential New Year's that I'm describing, this is an image from the 70s that was sort of like formulated in the 70s or like solidified kind of. And it's very well portrayed in this film from the same era that is called The Irony of Fate, 
or it's literally called the irony of fate or Slyokim Bottom. Remember what that means? No. That's the Banya, the Banya thing. Oh. Like, congratulations yeah. on your Banya. <laughs> and it's a really funny, it's a really great comedy. It's like a super Soviet classic. I think it still plays on TV after the like president's thing. That movie will play because it's like a New Year's classic. And it's about New Year's, but it's about this like really funny mishap where basically the main character gets confused, thinks that he's in a totally different city. He thinks he's in moscow but really he flies to st petersburg because he's really drunk and everything looks the same because he's in like and the streets are called the same because it's like in the soviet era like a lot of the streets had exactly the same names in every city like lenin street or whatever. <laughs> um they still kind of do yeah and it's like the story of his like mishaps because he accidentally like flew to a different city okay so now we're gonna take a short break and when we come back i'm going to tell you about the time when there was no Christmas tree. Oh. I am the flower, the hot house. I am the picture plant. I am the dark, fertile sun, nourishing in ways that others can't. At the end of the day, catch me con el otro y si me engo nada. got really like giddy learning about this because it's super interesting and I, I knew about it but I like forgotten all of it and I don't know if it will sort of come through. This kind of connection between the pre-Christian Slavic pagan traditions of Russia and how they were incorporated into the Christian traditions. Orthodox Christianity was brought to Russia in the 10th century. Oh shit, okay. 900 something, I can't remember. From the Eastern Orthodox like church. So it's been a while. At least this holiday, Christmas and New Year's sort of together, really sort of seamlessly integrated into the pre-Christian tradition that existed. To remind you about the tree, since that's our little character in the story, since Christmas has been celebrated, since Christianity in Russia existed, in the beginning at least, all the way up to the 1840s, there was no Christmas tree. One thing that's interesting is that pine trees or like evergreens were a symbol of death and like funeral. Oh. So the idea of putting a pine tree in your house was just like not even a little bit of a thing that you would consider. I just want to talk a little bit about how this pre-Christian Slavic winter time was kind of incorporated into the Christian celebration of Christmas. So for Christmas in the Christian tradition is actually 12 days. It's from the appearance of the star of Bethlehem over, you know, when Jesus was born. And then the 12 days until Epiphany, which is when the guys, the wise men, arrived to Jesus. So there's 12 days. And this worked really well with like this pre-Christian Slavic winter festival. Before Christianity came to Russia, Rus, which was this like ancient Russia, people celebrated around that time, around the same period of, same number of days. Basically, they were celebrating something like the solstice because it's on December 21st, the winter solstice. So yeah, so these like pre-Christian Slavic festival was about for one thing welcoming the light but it's actually about a lot of things so I'm gonna it's like hard to explain because it also was a time when they for example asked the winter god to 
make winter really cold so that their harvest wouldn't be so that winter wouldn't be there in the warmer months and ruin their harvest so they thought if they like went whole hog during the winter then they would be fine in the other months right exactly so you like leave certain special foods out for the god what later would become father frost but it's a prototype for like the winter yeah the winter god a prototype i don't think that's how they would say it (laughs) the prototype or what's gonna be in stores later oh another interesting thing is this time this period of winter was also a time where you invited like your ancestors into your house so I'm kind of explaining the pre-Christian part, but it literally like overlapped onto the Christian celebration of the 12 days of Christmas, again, between the birth of Jesus and on December 25th and Epiphany on January 6th. It mapped on so well that it's almost like I'm explaining what they did during Christianity as well, because it like almost doesn't matter. It's just like they added Christian names and stuff. But like there are different things you do on each day. One of the days basically is when, this is where it gets really crazy, probably because you're sort of, it's a time where you're inviting dead spirits into your house. It's a time when like demons and witches can be around. So, you know, like the portals are open or whatever. In Russia, the tradition of caroling which you do during those first few days of Christmas, you know, you go around from house to house and sing, is blended with some kind of scary version of Halloween. The people who dress up are called rajnie. That just means like dressed people. I mean, it's probably what Halloween originally looked like. It's like not cute. It's like scary. You know, they have like horns and like animal furs. I like that kind of stuff. I would be kind of scared, but um, <laughs> I I feel like it's really cool. It would be really cool to see in real life. Wait, so wait, what? Sorry, what era are we in right now? We're we're in anywhere from ancient. This is an ancient pre-Christian thing. Okay, what's really crazy is it continued throughout like all of Russian history, specifically in the villages. And like I was talking to my friend Nastya about this, and she said she as a kid like lived in a village and observed these traditions. Like people still do this. And they do it in like the scary way. They haven't like sexied it up like Halloween. The thing that Nastya saw like in the nineties or two thousands or whatever when she was a kid she said it was mostly kids who were dressed up and they go around from house to house. You've eaten the night before. You'll also do like trick or treat and people will give you like leftover food or candy or baked goods or something. And there's songs, specific songs that they sing that are have similar like trick or treat vibes. They're like asking for things, you know. And the other element of this pagan tradition time is that um, on one of those days, there's a bunch of divination practices and people are also like hyper superstitious at this time like um on christmas day if the first person to enter the house is an other woman then all day in that family all the women will feel sick (laughs) (laughs) now we're going to take another break and when we come back i will tell you about the time when the christmas tree first appeared oh thank god who did, who did, baby fit, jungle kid, way up, way up, way up, I know where it's at. Shout out to the tomboy riding scooters in the cul de sac. Into the unibrow, I shave and still won't let grow back. Carry done to you, by the Madabu. Great Undertaker bird coming down to Tarantu. Everything you done to me, already done to you. And to clean the bones of the ones that I once thought I knew. 
And I stay high not because I like the view, but because I cry a river every time I watch the news. And living in a world like this has got me so confused. If I get this check, am I still the stone the builder refused? Feel used? I do, but things are not as they appear. And I promise that I'm honest and I promise I'm sincere. And I fucked up in the head and I am fat and I am queer and I am poor and black and may even be ugly, but I'm here. This is the part where we talk about the tree coming to Russia, but it didn't come immediately. It came gradually. One little hobbit like looks around to see if anybody saw it. No? Oh, okay. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is the story of the development of the Christmas tree. So not the New Year's tree, but the Christmas tree. The first sort of hint of it was in 1700, Peter the Great. He always does things, right? He's such a mover and shaker, that guy. <laughs> what Peter did overall, what his big project was to bring European traditions to Russia, Europeanize Russia in many ways. Like, you can generalize about him that way. He also built St. Petersburg, very much modeled after several European cities like Amsterdam and Venice. Another thing he did that is relevant to us is he made New Year's on January 1st. So now we're talking about New Year's. And... During this time and in all of Russian history up until the Soviet Union, Russia operated according to the Julian calendar. He didn't change that. Peter the Great left that calendar, and that's the calendar that the Orthodox Church uses, so it's like still around, sort of like hanging around in the Orthodox Church. But he left that calendar, but he decided that he wanted, despite the fact that he's not changing the calendar, he's like, but I want New Year's to be on the first. Like, that's what the Europeans do, and that's what we're going to do for some fucking weird reason. As Peter likes to do, he makes this an order and he says, everyone, we have to celebrate on January 1st and it has to be for seven days. We're going to celebrate. And like people who own buildings and stuff need to put fir branches around (laughs) the outside of their gates because that's what they do in like Europe. That's what we need to do. And there's going to be a bunch of celebratory like loudness. Like he really liked fireworks and stuff personally. So it's like firework time. Um, cannons, you know, like loud celebrations. Were be- do you know, like, were people excited about this or were they like, why the fuck are we doing this? So the thing is that kind of like in the cities, like in the two, you know, big cities, St. Petersburg and Moscow, people who really like took up the whole fir tree thing apparently were like pubs and taverns, which is funny. So I don't know how much people like notice in general, but there are all these sort of references in literature to coming to a pub and like and mentioning the fir branches or being like we're going to like the fir tree you know like they they refer to the place based on its decorations so people were like fairly it it got incorporated into their lives and I don't think it like bothered people the other thing about it being incorporated is that because it was January 1st in the Julian calendar it wasn't the same as in the European calendar but it was like you can see how that's the, yes. it's not the same day, right, right, right. Um, but it ended up being like amidst this, you know, 12 days of Christmas, pre-Christian Slavic celebration time. So we kind of just like blended in. It was just like another day of another like feast day. So, yeah, it didn't it didn't differentiate itself that much. But this is the first time we see like fir trees, which remember are a symbol of death, like coming into the sort of symbolism of the holiday. The Christmas tree itself arrived in Russia very much by way of Germany. And it arrived in two, like from two different sources, basically. One is like a, a royal influence from Prussian empresses, the wives of a couple of Romanovs. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone in the story is named Nicholas and Alexandra, if you're wondering. 
That's all that you need to know. The arrival of the Christmas tree fully, not just like some pine branches, that doesn't happen until the 1800s. Peter like does his whole, brings a Europeanized New Year's celebration in and la la la, but he never sees Christmas trees. The Empress Alexandra, who was the first Empress Alexandra, who is the wife of Nicholas I, she like hosted a big sort of like remembering her own traditions from home. Um, she was Prussian. She hosted like a big Christmas party for kind of all the royal children, like nieces and nephews and her kids. It featured many little Christmas trees standing on tables. Okay, so the other influence, the other sort of source of the Christmas tree tradition for Russia is also from Germany but from Germans who just were living in St. Petersburg, so not royalty. Apparently, there were a lot of Germans living in St. Petersburg in the 19th century. Bringing their traditions from home, a lot of German families would have like Christmas trees maybe in the window or something that were apparently particularly visible so that like there were enough Germans and enough Christmas trees in the city, in St. Petersburg, that it actually like started a trend. Like People noticed them and were like, hey, I want to put a symbol of death in my house too. <laughs> That was the beginning of the trend, and then um, the sort of boom of the Christmas tree happened in the mid-1800s, really in the 1840s. And that's when the whole Christmas tree started to be sort of commercialized. One of the ways they were commercialized is that they were sold, like little little Christmas trees, were sold in candy, sh like confectionery shops. There's like one really famous, beautiful, elaborate one in St. Petersburg. It's not like a dinky candy shop. It's like an epic, amazing... Is it still amazing, there? Yeah, it's still there in these like confectionery shops they would sell these christmas trees already fully decorated and they were decorated all with like edible ornaments like beautiful cookies and gingerbread people cookie <laughs> and candies cookie and like i mean you can imagine and then like a little bit later people who lived in villages started selling christmas trees that they brought in from like the countryside into the cities Another important influence that kind of like brought what we think of as traditional Christmas symbols into Russian culture, but really are like European or actually German particularly, was art and specifically literature. Two examples are one is the Nutcracker, which was written in 1816 by Hoffman is German, a German man. Hoffman. Hoffman. It was a story originally called The Nutcracker and the Mouse King. But it was really well received in Russia. The ballet that we all know and love, called The Nutcracker, set to the music of Tchaikovsky in English, Tchaikovsky. And that ballet was first performed ever in the world in the Marinsky Theater in St. Petersburg in 1892. So at the end of the century. Another example of literature that referenced Christmas traditions would be like the fairy tales of um, Hans Christian Andersen, also German. So the other thing I just wanted to note about this time period before we get into the Soviet era. So yeah, so this is the time where like the Christmas tree is being born and flourishing and people love it. And at the same time, because they have a Christmas tree, it's like, well, we need like maybe it would be nice to have a mystical figure who gave children presents because the Germans seem to like it. And not only the Germans, others as well. There was a tradition in Russia of giving presents on Christmas. But it was like a present was from a specific person. It wasn't from a sort of magical man. So there were basically some attempts to popularize like a kind of like similar figure to Saint Nick because there is a Saint Nicholas, of course, in the Orthodox tradition. That didn't really catch on. So as I mentioned before, like they're in ancient Slavic tradition, there's this 
god of winter. At the time, so in the 1800s, that sort of father winter, father frost, definitely hadn't been like formulated into a present giver, but he was this like figure from from tradition was more formulated in folklore and literature at the time, just as a like a different type of Father Frost. The one example is from a 19th century story in which this Father Frost character lives in an ice world, which you can only enter by going through a well. Children would go search for him via a well for some reason. <laughs> So he doesn't like come to children, children come to him. He could say if if you had been like naughty or nice and could like reward you for being nice, but he wasn't, he didn't give presents. So he's not related to Christmas. So this is just like a sort of prototype for Santa or for Father Frost. So now we're reaching the end of the 1800s, the beginning of the 1900s. And this is when we finally get a solidified picture of the Father Frost who is going to be the Father Frost that lasts through the Soviet Union and and beyond. He's not like Santa Claus, like he's not chubby and jolly and red. He's more sort of stern and somber looking. He's like tall and thin. He wears a blue and white robe and he holds like a white staff, very Gandalf-like. Also has a beard and everything, you know, like, of course. He, he is finally sort of like solidified in the early, just before the revolution. So in the early 1900s as like both a winter figure of folklore and the giver of gifts on Christmas. So he finally finds his place. Now we're going to take another break. When we come back, I'm going to tell you how the Christmas tree was permanently oh. and forever transformed into the New Year's tree. Uh-oh. the soviet era which is the most fun era for the history of christmas that is (laughs) (laughs) gulag fun 
love a good ghoul. Oh God, we need to cut this out because this is bad. First order of business, one of the first orders of business after the revolution in 1917, is that, get ready for the Smith, the calendar changes. No! <laughs> Darn it. So this is when finally Russia switches from the Julian to the Gregorian calendar. The Gregorian calendar is the calendar that most of Europe and the West had before. The effect of this calendar switch basically is that like you get a kind of like multiplication of holidays because you have the old holidays and the new holidays with Christmas and New Year specifically. But in Russia today, people celebrate New Year's on January 1st and this is the, that's the important big holiday and that's all you need to know. Okay, so the Soviet era, like the history of this ho- these two holidays, Christmas slash New Year's, especially during the early Soviet, like pre-World War II era, it goes through several really distinct phases that are like just a few years long. So I'm going to walk you through those phases now. Let's hold hands. Phase one is the first like few years right after the revolution. It's in general is a really rough time. So we're talking about now it's like civil war, the revolution itself, World War One just ended, the economy's in a shitty place, people are really poor and shit sucks. There's no distinct specific law about like Christmas though Christmas is obviously a religious holiday and not a communist holiday. But in the beginning, there's no distinct law. It's just sort of like people maybe aren't celebrating or like maybe aren't getting Christmas trees, for example, because they can't afford it or they're like doing other things like trying to survive. Then in so the first sort of like official step on the Christmas tree ladder is in 1922, we get a new little like version of the Christmas tree. So obviously it can't be a Christmas tree because... Jesus is dead and God is dead. It is the Komsomol tree. How festive. Do we know what the Komsomols are? Youth group? Yeah. Yeah. They sort of embrace the tree, but like it doesn't really catch on. And like their celebrations around like Christmas and New Year's times are sort of like what they were before with like masquerades and dances and fun stuff. And they're like Komsomol centers. And then we have the next big phase just a few years later. 1929. Get ready for it. Smith, are you ready? I'm ready. In 1929, Christmas is canceled. No! No more Christmas! That's what Lenin said. I knew communism was no good as soon as I heard about that no Christmas thing. Seriously. You'll be saying happy Christmas again, folks. Yeah, so 1929 is an important year because that's when you we get the first sort of like really concrete anti-religious propaganda and policy one of the things that happens especially that first winter is that like these sort of groups of citizen volunteer you know like narc gelanti people patrol the streets on christmas eve and the days around it peeking into people's windows to make sure that they don't have any christmas trees or other festivities of bourgeois culture fucking nerds always fucking everything up should break their glasses. The tree is duly bad for communist ideology because it's both the symbol of religion of this holiday and it's also a symbol of like the bourgeois order, the family and the cult of happiness. So this is like a brief it's a, a brief a tr- brief treeless period, a sad treeless barren period from 1929 until 1935. And in 1935, we get a very lovely person. True, he was complicit in the great terror. Yeah, well, they were all complicit, all the people who were alive and in power. 
His name is Pavel Postyshev. I can't remember his exact title, party leader of some sort from Kiev. He really wanted to bring the Christmas tree back. He thought it was like an important symbol for children specifically, this joyful thing and like why take it away from kids and now they're really sad. There's this anecdote from the memoirs of Nikita Khrushchev, who, just to remind you, is was the general secretary of the Soviet Union after Stalin died in 1953. Anyway, Khrushchev was very much around in 1935. He wasn't like, he didn't just like pop up in the 50s. He was like around with Stalin. He was, they were close and everything. And in his memoirs, he wrote about this incident. Basically, he was in a car with Stalin and this guy, Pavel Postyshev. And Postyshev addresses Stalin and like brings up Christmas trees specifically. And he's like, I'm just kind of like, I'm just thinking it would be really nice I know it's like a bourgeois symbol and everything, but I think if we bring it back, it will make the children happy and we can like make it into a symbol of joy for the builders of communism in the future and like all of that. I'm just picturing him like sitting in the backseat and Stalin's in the passenger seat and Khrushchev's driving. The guy like leans forward and like has his head peering around the car seat, you know? He's like, oh, can we get, can we do Christmas trees again, please? <laughs> and Stalin's like, fine. <laughs> Stalin had a soft spot for the children. He just said, look, write a letter in Pravda in the paper, basically like an op-ed letter talking about this need to reintroduce Christmas trees, and we will support it. That's what Postyshev does. He writes a very expressive letter in Pravda that's like an op-ed, but very much is like an ad for Christmas trees. I don't know. Come on down to Yvonne's tree yard. <laughs> no, but it's like arguing for the re- why we should introduce them for the children. It's very much for the children. The other thing, though, is that this is like this, this creepy part in the letter. He says like he like gives this very Orwellian rewriting of history kind of in the letter because he's like, Back before the revolution, you know, like way back, like five years ago, children had New Year's trees that they loved, et cetera, et cetera. And like these trees were so wonderful. But he refers to them as New Year's trees, which I find just like creepy because he just like totally, it's not like he says like, oh, they had Christmas trees and like we're going to just. Yeah, he just pretends that Christianity never existed. It just like wasn't a thing. And this is the beginning of this incredibly successful rebranding of the tree from the Christmas tree to the New Year's tree in Russia. Within four days, including the day that the letter was published in Pravda, all the like kids, youth organizations, the Comsmalls and the Pioneers and everything, get all they all like start getting together their committees because they all are like, we have to have a tree, the tree is a thing and it has to be for the children. They very efficiently got them together in time for the holidays. Okay, so the last thing I just want to mention about this full transformation into New Year's trees and holidays is we're going to come back a little bit to Father Frost. Because Father Frost, he didn't die like Christmas did. I think he was just more sort of like put aside in a cupboard. They were like, we don't know what to do with him. He was sort of like ceremoniously introduced in 1937 at some official New Year's celebration. But this time, he was unexpectedly accompanied by his gal pal, Snigurichka. (laughs) The last little thing I want to tell you about is just a little backstory about who the fuck Snigurichka is and why she entered the scene (laughs) um snigorichka means like little snow girl okay so there's two things the bolsheviks created this figure character but they took her from like older russian folklore but the thing that they created in 1937 what they introduced to people was this like father frost and his little sidekick basically the story was snigorichka is father frost's 
granddaughter, though he has no other relatives. So <laughs> couldn't he have just made her? Okay, I like what you're thinking and you're going to see why. You're a little ahead of the game, Smith. You're very smart. Thank you. What's interesting is the figure of Snogorchka is completely unique in like Christmas lore around the world. There's no like female character like this. We have Mrs. Claus a little bit, but she's not like a helper. She's a wife. But yeah, so the images, the images of Snegorichka in the very beginning, and like when she was she first introduced in 1937, she was like a little girl. She was like a little little granddaughter, rosy-cheeked snow girl. Maybe unfortunately, she's like over time, to this day, has sort of transformed into more of like a a young lady. That kind of like confusing, like sexualized Disney princess phase where like like the little mermaid or something where you're like not sure if she's like if she's 15 or 25 12 12 but she has breasts kind of the modern sort of like cartoony versions of Snigorichka that I've seen recently she's like in her blue and white coat or robe or whatever is like cinched at the waist and she has like a super skinny hourglass figure and like definitely has a bust the backstory of her is sort of her folklore past She's a character from basically a fairy tale in which there are like two elderly people, just like some nice village people, and they can't conceive a child and they're sad. Sounds very biblical. They, you know, wish and pray and everything for a child and it doesn't happen and they've sort of given up hope. And then one winter day, they're outside in the snow and for some reason they decide to build a snow person. And the snow person turns into a little lovely snow girl called Snogorichka. So they create this little snow girl and she's happy and she comes alive and everything and they're like, oh, we're so happy the gods gave us a baby who's made of snow. They send her off to play or something with like the other real girls <laughs> in the village. She's playing with all her little girlfriends and then for some for some reason, they, well, there is a reason, but I don't know it. There's like some Slavic tradition, ancient tradition or something. Um, they all decide to play a game in which they build a fire and jump over it. And <laughs> get ready for a really Russian ending here. And all the little girls jump over the fire. Wee, wee. And little Snigorjka jumps over the fire, but she never lands on the other side. <laughs> because she melts into a little pool of nothing she dies but now she's been rebranded as santa's nubile young helper slash granddaughter yeah now now she's come back to life forever and ever and she'll never die that's the episode thanks for listening be sure as always to subscribe to us on whatever platform you use follow us on twitter and instagram at she's in russia subscribe to our newsletter at she's in russia.com it's a monthly newsletter and give us a call and leave a question like Chris did at plus one three four seven two nine two seven one two six. And the last thing, if you are still listening, is that we've started kind of compiling different resources for each episode on something called Arena. So if you go to a r e dot n a and look up my name, which is Smith Freeman, you'll see that we've made channels for each episode. And basically, what that means is that we'll pick some of the articles we read to do each episode, maybe have some pictures in it, have the full music that we use, and you can kind of go there and look around. It's usually like six things, so it's not much to manage. And we'll see you next week. If Y E S spells yes, what does E Y E S spell? <laughs> E-Y-E-S? Yeah.